All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Rav Arora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Today, we are really excited to host Dr. Robert Malone, who is an American physician and biochemist and expert in mRNA technology. Um, throughout the pandemic, uh, his advocacy has become more and more well-known, and he's been openly talking about the risks of mRNA vaccines and has been a vocal opponent of mandates. And uh, we're looking forward to having a conversation with him and Jay on the corruption of academia, censorship, and the pharmaceutical industry, and the future of the scientific establishment. Uh, Jay, Robert, welcome. Thank uh, you, Rav. It's always so good to be here. Welcome, Robert. So, and so glad you accepted our invitation to talk. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Well, I'm honored. Uh, you're so busy. I just, uh, I'm, I'm uh, glad to have a moment of your time. Uh, I can't imagine what your life must be like still maintaining <laughs> an academic position while all of this is circulating around us. Well, it's certainly been overturned as, as I know your life has been. Um, Robert, I was hoping you could tell the audience something about your journey because it is so interesting. I mean, I first, uh, I first learned about you roughly the same time almost everybody else did. Because I'm not in that uh, in that biochemical you know bio, bio, biochemical world. I'm not in that kind of research. I do different kind of research. And um, yeah, I'm I'm more uh, historically. Uh, well, okay. So the question is when to begin. I think I'll jump in the, in the middle. Um, before, um, just about a year before nine eleven. Uh, there was a seminal event in the gene therapy academic community uh, and in gene therapy research, uh, which had become uh, really quite uh, a uh, a clicky world of uh, insiders and anointed, very much like the vaccine space is or AIDS research is, with a lot of big money behind it. And... I was a uh, one of the leaders in developing a sector of the gene therapy space that was counterculture, uh, involving non-viral gene delivery rather than uh, viral-based, viral-vectored vaccines and and therapeutics, <clears throat> and. Um, uh, the person that had grown to become the most prominent scientist in the gene therapy space, uh, certainly within the NIH funding sphere, uh, was involved. Uh, his name was Jim Wilson. Uh, he was, you know, uh, big pharma money behind him, UPenn, uh, his own institute, uh, limousines, all that stuff, all the trappings of big money science that we've come to see after, you know, since the Bayh-Dole Act was enacted. Uh, he was involved in a gene therapy trial involving an adenovirus vector uh, trying to treat a uh, inborn error metabolism in, in young children. And uh, one of the people enrolled in one of his clinical trials uh, was uh, dosed 
repeatedly with an adenoviral vector and uh, did that's, not that's respond. That's the kind of vaccine that the J&J vaccine used or the AstraZeneca yeah, vaccine. Yeah, J&J right? vaccine and AstraZeneca are the same technology. So it's gene therapy technology, but in this case used for gene therapy. And the young man's name was Jesse Gelsinger. And uh, Jesse died on the table uh, during a adenoviral vector infusion. And this was the first clear attributable gene therapy death. And it created a huge uh, amount of controversy. And there was the usual uh, attempts to obscure what had actually taken place. I, and I remember that, Robert, that there was a, a big scandal inside the biomedical community over over that specific thing, because there was so, a lot of hope. Right? So I was at the center of that scandal um, in the sense that I was, uh, just as I am now in a way, a uh, member of the community who had intimate knowledge of the events and the technology. And uh, at the time, I was in the middle of... Uh, mandated bioethical training as a NIH-funded uh, young investigator. Robert, you, uh, you've gone mute. Uh, can you hear me okay? Oh, there you're back. You're back. I can hear you. Yeah. You're back. As, as I was going along in that training, uh, this event happened, and I spoke to my mentor, who turns out also to have been Jill's PhD mentor for her uh, degree. Jill is your uh, wife. Right. Correct. Uh, and I told him I knew uh, what these events were uh, and what the context was around this, and I described what I knew about the situation, which was very different from what was being pushed out by UPenn and corporate media at the time. And uh, he told me that, in his opinion, I had a moral obligation to go public with what I knew. And uh, I knew that if I did that, it would destroy my career as a gene therapy uh, researcher, NIH-funded gene therapy researcher. And uh, But faced with the dilemma, uh, I decided that I would follow what I thought was the moral and proper pathway and uh, go public with what I knew about this and work to help the press comprehend what had actually happened, which in this case was that uh, Jim Wilson and his team had gone off protocol in a clinical trial protocol and had it was a dose escalation trial in which they had reached the end of the dose escalation and the young gentleman had not responded clinically, which they believed was impossible that he would not uh, respond clinically because of all the science that they had done, the work they had done previously in animal models. And uh, so uh, they went off protocol and uh, escalated yet another level. And when they did that, it triggered uh, DIC, and uh, the gentleman died of uh, complications of uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation. Uh, 
So that that's a that's a condition where you you're basically you have uh, uh, your blood all over your body uh, coagulates essentially clots. Yeah, and and you uh, have uh, a blood pressure crisis and and multi organ failure, and that's what happened to Gelsinger. And uh, there was a very active attempt to obscure these facts. And I, with, with the um, advice, under the advice of, of my bioethics mentor, I had uh, gone to the press with what I knew about this, um, including the New York Times. And uh, um, uh, met, I had encountered members of the press at an NIH conference where they were discussing these matters. I was at University of Maryland, Baltimore at the time. And uh, um, so, for instance, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, uh, this was her big break as a young journalist, uh, was uh, that she connected with me and I helped her to understand what was going on. And she wrote a series of articles that uh, um, really put her on the map. And... uh, as predicted, it had the uh, anticipated outcome of uh, I became an immediate persona, persona non grata. My uh, bioethics mentor uh, jumped into the middle of this after, after I had spoken out, uh, connected with uh, Gelsinger's father, and uh, ended up getting quite a bit of money uh, to be involved in a bioethics institute uh, that was set up uh, with the settlement money that uh, Mr. Gelsinger received. So my bio, bioethics mentor did fine out of it. Uh, I, not so much. I pretty much destroyed my academic career. And it was at a time in which there was a lull in NIH funding anyhow. Gene therapy funding t- crashed. This is uh, right after the doubling of NIH money in the late 90s, Right. Right. Well, this is right at the late 90s. So um, uh, I was left um, really as as a person in academe that had been surviving on soft money, rising to associate professor level on soft money uh, over the span of uh, about a decade. Uh, I was left with no money and uh, no safety net and uh, kind of out of necessity, took a position with uh, Department of Defense at the um, uh, Uniform University of the Health Sciences, USUS, as an associate professor of surgery, working on a breast cancer project. And I set up a big breast cancer research institute, which, by the way, now there's one of my uh, um, cyber stalkers are asserting that... uh, um, somehow in doing this, I was uh, involved in uh, in creating the conditions uh, in enabling uh, the 9-11 events. I'm still a little confused. About <laughs> I mean, what um, I've, what my experience with that is that people people that want to destroy your message or make your message makes them uncomfortable will say almost anything. It's it's. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's in any case. So uh, the key point here kind of jumping in the middle of my career is that I'd already built one career in academe uh, after the events around my initial discoveries as a young man at 28 at the Salk Institute. 
which um, resulted in a great big uh, academic squabble over who was going to get rich off of that. Um, uh, and uh, um, I ended up with a post-traumatic stress disorder and a nervous breakdown. But um, so I'd recovered from that, built an academic career, faced this uh, moral junction of whether to uh, stay silent and maintain my career or speak out about what I knew about a crucial event um, and stand up against oh, what was then an, an equivalent of the media juggernaut of what was going, what's been going on now over the last three years. So Robert, just to, and, just to step back for a second to that, to that, your, the, the invention when you were 28, I mean, I read some of those patents uh, to prepare for this conversation. Those were, those were fundamental contributions to the mRNA technology uh, that you're talking about that we are currently using for the vaccines, the, the, the mRNA vaccines now. It's, not- it's essentially, you know, outside of the composition of matter of the expressed protein, the spike, the engineered spike, um, it's all there. The method of manufacturing of the mRNA is still the same. The, uh, there's subtle nuances that differ in the sequences used, but the structure of the RNA that I, uh, pioneered and, and demonstrated remains the same. The manufacturing purification process remains the same. Uh, the delivery technology is fundamentally the same with some nuances. There, there, there were other, some like the advances of, Substituting uracil, pseudouracil for uracil and, and other other yeah other, pseudouridine. So that's, oh, that's sorry, an, sorry, pseudouridine. Yes, that's that's an interesting one, um, and that's the one that the press focuses on because that uh, is the one of the key patent positions that both Moderna and uh, BioNTech Pfizer rely upon, which is another UPenn patent. If you go back to the patent that uh, was filed and issued for uh, Carrico and Weissman from UPenn about pseudouridine. What's fascinating about it is there are absolutely no claims about use for vaccination. Hmm. Um, the assertion that they uh, uh, were the uh, inventors of the tech uh, has no basis in the patent literature, let's say, whereas those uh, patents from uh, the disclosure in 88 and then through the patents um, filings in 90 and 91, have the full reduction to practice, including uh, mounting immune response in mammals. Uh, so it's, it's, all, it's all there, and, and the, uh, uh, the improvement since then, the most important improvement was actually not the pseudouridine. The pseudouridine is not enabling, Jay, if you understand patent literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a company uh, in in Europe called CureVac that actually advanced a competing mRNA vaccine, but they used a lower dose of mRNA. They were more cautious in their dose escalation studies in humans. And so it mounted a lower level of antibody response, but did not use pseudouridine. But that lower level of antibody response can be easily uh, attributed to the fact they just used a lower dose. Yeah. So it's it's all of this around the pseudouridine story is um, uh, basically uh, a manufactured story, uh, and um, it it's not supported in this in the scientific literature or the findings in terms of uh, 
the activity. What, what does matter that is always overlooked is the work at University of British Columbia, uh, which uh, apparently the rumor is that Justin Trudeau's family has a significant financial stake in that. And that has to do with the formulation of the, of the fats, the positively charged lipids. Yeah. And that's, that's what's really enabling the pseudouridine is not. So, um, um, uh, so Robert, I wanted, I, I just bring that up mainly. I just want to complete the picture. You have been through a tremendous you you were battle tested at the at the eve of this pandemic you'd been th- you'd been through fights over uh over academic uh, uh sort of priority and and uh um sort of patents over the, the some of the central technologies used in the vaccines in this pandemic and many and, other tech uh so this this is well, this is the only thing you know i created this company uh Inovio, and uh, that's, that uses post-electrical fields for delivery of polynucleotides, including for vaccination. And that also was another um, hotly contested area. I cut my teeth in the AIDS business uh, starting in 1983. In uh, the lab so I was sure. in, uh, was my, my mentor traveled with Bob Gallo to visit Luc Montagnier. I, I had met Luc Montagnier years and years ago and remained friends until he passed away recently. Um, I was well familiar with all the dirty academic politics that went on with AIDS. That and was, that was and so let's, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that another time. Cause, but I just want to bring up, I want to, I want to, I want to fast forward to 2020, 2021, but um, just, just yeah. to paint the picture for the audience, you would, you were battle tested. You would, not only had you been involved in these academic fights, you, you had, you'd blown the whistle on it on a scandal and not just an academic scandal, a major medical scandal on the application of a, of a new technology before uh, in your history. And you'd paid the cost for that. You'd essentially been ostracized within academics. Now let's jump to 2020. All right. So 2020 arrives, the world is going crazy with the lockdowns. There's a, there's this push to, to develop a vaccine as rapidly as they possibly could with uh, in with Operation Warp Speed, uh, not just but not just Operation Warp Speed around the world, there's all this race essentially to develop a vaccine, almost from the moment we learned about the the, the virus. Um, what was your response? How how did you view that? What was you what was you, what were you thinking at the time? So, <clears throat> just to set the clock on this, what we now know is that race to develop that vaccine preceded uh, public in and uh, executive branch awareness of the uh, virus itself, um, which is a, an oddity, but it's well-documented now. Um, it's hard to explain without going down various uh, conspiracy theory pathways, which we don't need to go down. But um, so uh, I first learned of the threat associated with this novel coronavirus on January 4th of 2020. When I got, remember that I'm, I'm a, not only battle hardened in the way that you described, but I've been through multiple outbreaks. Uh, I was at the tip of the spear uh, for the Ebola West Africa outbreak, um, acting on behalf of DOD. But at that point in time, I had learned, uh, I had I'd become a consultant and had learned the lesson that to survive in D.C., you have to keep your head down. And to survive as a consultant, uh, the best strategy is to let your clients take credit for what you're doing um, and just go about your business and, and try to provide service. I, so at that point, I'm kind of a loan operator 
uh, running a small boutique consulting shop, uh, valued generally for my willingness to uh, provide independent, uh, let's say, truth speech, typically to C-suite people, as well as my expertise in writing grants and proposals and understanding uh, um, regulatory affairs and clinical research, I'd completed a fellowship at Harvard in uh, global clinical research. And so uh, um, in the course of all this work, I developed various relationships within the biodefense industry, which is rife with people who are um, with the within the uh, intelligence community. Uh, you know, it is, I, I, and I had been uh, received uh, secret clearance from DOD. Uh, so I, I know many people who are very high profile in this industry who are full on CIA. And uh, that's not because I'm CIA, it's because that is the nature of being in the biodefense business. Um, it is, it is, significantly dominated by uh, intelligence community members <coughs> and continues to be so. Um, so I received a call from one of those that I had known for years and co-published with previously in the Zika outbreak on January 4th. And I believed at the time that he was calling from Wuhan that in, in stuff that he's published in National Geographic and other things, uh, which I think is mostly kind of propaganda. Um, he's now said that he was not in Wuhan at the time, but arrived there shortly thereafter. This would be Dr. Michael Callahan, who is truly brilliant. And by the way, was the one that both managed the uh, Diamond Princess uh, events and uh, the build out of the tent hospitals in New York City and set the policy for uh, ventilator use in the United States and uh, for how how we would manage uh, the nursing homes, extended care facilities. So Callahan has long been an advisor to presidents and is, is often the intelligence community and DARPA's uh, point man when there's a hot zone somewhere in the world, China, Africa, wherever. Um, and, uh, so, uh, he gave me a ring on January 4th and told me that there was this novel coronavirus circulating in Wuhan since the end of December that, uh, was looking like it was out of control and it was a major biologic threat and asked that I engage in this as I had with prior outbreaks and uh, bring together a team, which is one of my core skills, uh, to uh, respond to this potential threat. And uh, what I did at that time, as I usually do, is, is I worked up a threat assessment uh, after gathering what I could from the literature and, and lay sources and other sources of information about and networking with colleagues about this novel coronavirus. And my assessment was that the timeline for developing a safe and effective vaccine, given that the history of coronavirus vaccine development for humans was abysmal, uh, a history of repeated failure uh, combined with the threat of antibody-dependent enhancement. 
And a very similar story, but slightly better on the veterinary side. Uh, there are a couple of licensed veterinary coronavirus vaccines. But my, my assessment was that to develop a safe and effective vaccine, even though I'm a vaccinologist at that point, but also a specialist in drug repurposing, our best option to mitigate the threat was to act promptly to identify existing licensed repurposed drugs. And so I set about to build a team to do that using uh, high throughput screening and uh, computational uh, drug uh, docking uh, and design and uh, pulled together volunteers, including a team that I was already working with, uh, um, seeking to develop uh, agents which would be countermeasures for uh, um, some of the uh, chemical uh, bio threat agents. And uh, we got going. And among, you know, within a few weeks, we had screened. Uh, um, hundreds of thousands of compounds, uh, the, the entire library of all licensed compounds and known uh, nutraceuticals uh, using computational approaches. Um, I had uh, built a, uh, a model of, of the, um, some of the key proteins in coronavirus uh, in, in terms of a modeled uh, X-ray crystallography version of the protein, and uh, among other things, we identified the compound famotidine, uh, as well as a number of others, as leading candidates, and proceeded to focus on drug repurposing. It was only later, just uh, um, just uh, just from the timeline, Robert. This is a uh, this is like early 2020. They this is January 2020. This is January, like January 2020. Okay. We, I notified uh, the Pentagon and the White House um, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of our findings in drug repurposing, I think in uh, late February. Uh, meanwhile, Jill got going writing a book that I helped co-author on how to prepare and protect yourself from the novel coronavirus. We sat here in the house next to each other on the couch working on our computers, uh, and she published that on using self-publishing through Amazon in the first week of February, 2020. It was subsequently taken down uh, without explanation by Amazon um, in March. And uh, we finally found out that the explanation for why it was taken down was that it had violated community guidelines. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Just so, just so the audience knows. So, so by March, 2020, you're, you're proposing based on your background, um, some hypotheses about potential uh, cheap repurposed drugs, at least, at least like it, it more, angles more than which, more uh, than hypotheses. I was infected in the end of February uh, because I was at an MIT uh, drug discovery conference, computational drug discovery conference, um, actually lodged across the street from the company that is given credit for being ground zero for the Boston outbreak. Um, and I developed uh, severe COVID. So I would got Wuhan one during the very first wave in Boston and uh, came home with burning lungs and out of desperation, tried some of the drugs that we, I was so afraid because it was, it was considered so unethical for a physician to self-treat 
um, using an experimental procedure. Um, but I, I felt desperate. I had to do something. I thought I was going to die. I, I was deep in our, the team that I developed had uh, other pathologists. Uh, we'd all convinced ourselves that uh, the outcome of, of infection with this virus was going to be uh, progressive pulmonary interstitial fibrosis, which is a, you know, eventual life compromising disease. And I, I was going to die. Um, so out of desperation, I started taking um, some of the agents that we'd identified. And the one that I got an immediate uh, clinical response from was famotidine. Um, and so I already had that as an N of one. And then again, so frightened, but somebody in our uh, close circle their father, who is morbidly obese and worked at a local hospital, also developed COVID. And I had uh, just out of out of empathy and desperation for the family, um, told them to get famotidine and for him to start taking it. In order to treat with famotidine, you have to go far above the recommended dose for gastritis. Um, uh, and it's all there's a, a paper out uh, that I published uh, as first author in uh, um, Frontiers in Pharmacology that, that lays this out, uh, the, the pharmacology of why you have to have that level of famotidine. Um, so, so, you, so you'd find something that was, that was uh, a potentially useful early treatment. It's, it's a cheap drug. Um, now, uh, and you published the idea and- And, and got the funding on, for it. I got about $20 million for funding. You had funding uh, for it. You published it on trials. Amazon. And Amazon pulls the the book. Yeah, did so the you, book did, the you... book was more about a standard. Uh, um, the the book was written really for our, our the people around us, the average person, and it was just standard stuff relating to known uh, mitigation measures in the event of an infectious disease outbreak. Because we had been in this business for over a decade, um, and so, uh, so, the, so it was question, standard, question, standard I want, stuff. I want to understand why would they pull the book? Like, so Amazon is in the business of selling books. Um, they're not. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't so help. So we them. had the same problem, Jay. Um, it made no sense. And as I say, sometimes I write this in our book, uh, "The um, Lies My Government Told Me," as as kind of my red pill moment. We also were perplexed. Uh, you know, had over a hundred references written in an academic style, a detailed uh, chapter on the novel coronavirus and what was known at the time that I wrote. Um, it was standard uh, guidance. Uh, and we did discuss masks. Uh, we discussed the, the good, uh, you know, the data in support and the data against the use of masking. Um, and, uh, it was very data-based, but then translated into common language and was selling quite good. Uh, and so we were perplexed as you are now and tracked it down. Um, immediately preceding this, there was a series of meetings at the White House uh, with the World Health Organization, Amazon, uh, Google, and many others uh, focused on uh, the threat of mis- and disinformation with COVID. And of course, there were there were these famous FOIA emails from Mark Zuckerberg to Tony Fauci very very early on in the pandemic. I think January January twenty twenty. That's that's right. So in January twenty twenty, and and I've got the details, the 
um, Washington Post article cited. There was uh, multiple articles, fairly obscure, in the lay press covering these meetings that were held at the White House. In there were preceding meetings at the World Health Organization, in which it was.